morning. <clears throat> it's been really good to be with you this weekend. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know a lot of you, and I love what God is doing in this, in this church. It is uh, truly a blessing to behold, and I thank him for that. <clears throat> well, the title of this morning's message is Forgiveness and the Fig Tree. So let me pray for us. Spirit of the living God, we thank you for causing your word to be written down and scripturated for us, that we may have it and study it and reflect on it and be nourished by it. And we ask, O oh Lord, now that as your word is preached, that you yourself would inhabit the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm not sure how your uh, pastor preaches. The way I usually preach, I often have uh, three points, and I'm, I'm an alliteration guy, so I try to work that in there if I can. Sometimes it's pretty forced. But I'm not going to be doing that this morning. I'm not going to be doing alliteration. I'm not going to be doing a three-point or whatever-point message. What I want us to do, because uh, I think this is the best way to approach the text, is I want to enter into the narrative, enter into the story, the flow of things, to walk with uh, Jesus and his disciples. And the reason is, is because it's in the flow of what we just read from Mark 11 that we understand the impact of the message that Jesus has for us. Mark uh, chapter 11 uh, it begins with something we, didn't, we did not read. It's often called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, a Palm Sunday. And then after uh, entering the city with great fanfare, Jesus, Mark records that Jesus you know, uh, went directly to the temple. But it was late. And Mark makes this casual remark in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple... And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right, so Jerusalem, temple, leave to make the two-mile trek to Bethany. And, uh, and then Jesus returns the next day to Jerusalem. And again, Mark tells us that he goes to the temple. And what Jesus found in the temple was uh, a bustling marketplace. And I just remind us of what we read in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. All right. What was Jesus so upset about when he went to the temple? 
Um, he says, evidently, these merchants, these sellers of things, and I guess with the permission of the temple leaders, of the religious leaders of the day, uh, had made the temple, made the house of God a den of robbers. Now, that expression, den of robbers, that comes from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Uh, here's what it says in Jeremiah 7. It says, There God asked, Has the, this house, which is called by my name, become, become a den of robbers? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. All right, so what is it the Lord sees in the temple by which he would declare that they have made it a den of robbers? What is it? He says, my eyes have seen it. What did he see? Well, if we look at this, that section of Jeremiah, uh, we see that Jeremiah describes great immorality and idolatry in the house of God, in the city of God. Immorality, all over, idolatry. Instead of the worship of the true and living God, idols were recognized and honored and served and worshiped. It was God's house. But what the people had done was the people had taken it, the house of God, for their own purposes. All right, now, 600 years later, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And we're told in John's gospel that zeal for his father's house consumed him. And Jesus, looking around and seeing all the community, he said he calls them out for the same thing that God says 600 years later in the book of Jeremiah. All right, what's the lesson for us here? Well, I think the immediate lesson is this. The church is to be what God wants it to be, not what we want it to be. The church is to be what God wants it to be. It's God's, God's church, not what we want it to be. Uh, in the 16th century, there was a British preacher named John, New uh, John Bunyan. And uh, uh, probably his most, uh, well, I guess his most famous work was Pilgrim's Progress. Um, it's a fascinating read, uh, very popular even today, uh, filled with imagery and allegory. Well, uh, John Bunyan's second most famous work was called The Holy War. And uh, what Bunyan does is he lays out, he, he presents things in an allegorical way. So these, these images, these representations. And in the Holy War, Bunyan lays out Lucifer. Now that's the devil. Lucifer's strategy against Mansoul. Now Mansoul is what uh, Bunyan calls the church. Mansoul. Here is Lucifer's strategy against Mansoul, the church. Let us but cumber and occupy and amuse Mansoul sufficiently, and they will make their castle a warehouse for goods instead of a garrison for men of war. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the devil's plan is to make Christ's 
church something other than what God intends it to be. You know, the church is called the church militant. We are the church militant. We're the church on mission. We're the church advancing for the sake of the kingdom of God. But nowadays, we look at the cultural landscape in which we live. And what does the church look like? Does it look like a church at war for the sake, for the cause of Jesus Christ? Or does it look like the church at ease? Is it more consumed with consumerism, offering whatever program is possible? Is it more interested in being a social club? Is the idea of church all that is squeezed into an hour on Sunday morning? Or is the church a garrison for men of war advancing for the cause of Jesus Christ where the gates of hell cannot stand against it? Well, here's Jesus. He comes to the temple. And he pulls out two, two sections of the Old Testament prophets. He says from Jeremiah, he says, you have made it a den of robbers. But then he also gives from Isaiah 56 his father's intention for, for, the, for the church. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, in Isaiah 56, where it says, talks about the house of prayer as a house of prayer for the nations, there's an amazing picture there. What it shows is, is the church on mission. It shows the people of God uh, a light to the nations. It shows them as a, uh, the, where the outcasts are being gathered in. And as they are gathered in, it is a house of prayer. It is a place filled with joy as the church is being what God wants it to be, gathering these outcasts in God's house where they will be joyful. All right, so um, there's a, it's a reminder to us right from the start here that this church, Renewal Presbyterian Church, is the church of God, and as the church of God, it is to serve the purposes of God that he intends for you. We are to be about our Father's business, kingdom business. All right, so the church is to be a house of prayer, uh, but there's more going on here. We want to get that message. We want to latch on to it. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story that impresses us on why it is so important. Why it is urgent and necessary and indispensable that the church not lose sight of its calling to be a house of prayer for the nations. Uh, Mark presents this account of uh, Jesus clearing the temple in a frame. Uh, there's a flow to the story in a frame. So uh, here's um, Jesus entering Jerusalem to the shouts of praise, Hosanna, coming kingdom. He checks out the temple, returns to Bethany, heads back to Jerusalem, and then right in the midst of this flow, this narrative, is this curious encounter with a fig tree. And I would suggest this, that we cannot understand Jesus' message about the purpose for God's church unless we understand the message of the fig tree that brackets it. 
The fig tree helps us to understand the significance of the church as a house of prayer. All right, so let's try and figure this out. We're going to go back to Bethany. Remember, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, late, go back to Bethany, the two-mile trip to Bethany. Now, let's go back to Bethany and pick it up from there. Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Curious, huh? Now, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? There's some who will say he cursed it because of, uh, it was fruitless. Jesus is condemning fruitlessness. And actually, that's not a bad idea, a bad thought. It's a reasonable conclusion because uh, Luke records this parable. This is Luke 13. And Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree, there's a fig tree again, planted in his vineyard, and he, the man, came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And it's reasonable because one, the thing about fruit, God wants fruit. He wants fruit in our lives. He wants the fruit of the Spirit. He wants the fruit of faith. He wants the fruit of repentance. He wants the fruit of transformation. He wants the fruit of uh, the, the good things that he wants us to do in this world to the praise of his name. God wants fruit. He doesn't want barrenness. Fruit is a sign of life. It's a sign of stewardship. But Mark makes this clear. It was not the season for figs. And that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair for Jesus to curse the fig tree. And we feel bad for the fig tree. Why would Jesus curse the fig tree for not having fruit when it wasn't the season for fruit? It seems unreasonable. Well, that's where we're, we're, this leg of the journey leaves us. Uh, we, Jesus cursing the fig tree, and we, and probably the disciples, are wondering, what in the world is this all about? You notice how it ends, though, in verse 14, this, this leg. And his disciples heard it. In other words, they're store this away, because there's more to come. There's the rest of the story. To be continued. All right, so, cursed fig tree. Jesus and his disciples continue their journey on to Jerusalem. And uh, they, uh, they, again, Mark records, they head into the temple, go directly to the temple. Jesus finds it. It's a bustling place of commerce. He does his thing, and he reminds them of the purpose for God's house. You've made it a den of robbers, but my father's house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. All right, then we leave Jerusalem, and we pick up the flow in uh, verse 19. 
And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. All right, it's clear at this point that this fig tree is an object lesson. It's a, a prop of sorts. It's a teaching device for Jesus with his disciples and for us. Uh, Jesus went to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, temple, uh, left, cursed the fig tree. He went to Bethany, uh, left for Jerusalem, cursed the fig tree, comes to Jerusalem again. Now, he comes to the fig tree again, and he, re and he completes the object lesson. Now, what point does Jesus make? What is the lesson? What point does he make? What is the object lesson of the fig tree? Jesus doesn't speak about fruitlessness. I mean, that was a good guess, right, for what the lesson was, fruitlessness, but that's not what he speaks about. He doesn't speak about fruitlessness like in the parable in Luke 13. He doesn't talk about judgment. Peter says, look, the, the tree you cursed withered. What does Jesus say? Look at verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus doesn't speak about fruit, does he? But fruit is very much a part of the picture. Fruit is important, but that's not what his emphasis is here. What does he speak about? He speaks about prayer. He even goes on to reinforce this lesson on prayer. Verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So at the fig tree, the lesson is about prayer, and the lesson is that, that uh, Jesus highlights the capability of prayer to move mountains. Now let's, let's think of that image a little bit, moving a mountain. Um, talk about a, uh, um, a, I mean, well, there's no sturdier image than a mountain. You know, here's this huge thing of rock coming out. It's attached to the earth, you know, and you're called to move this mountain, this massive thing in front of you, and it is the very epitome of something that uh, you can it's impossible. It's impossible. But Jesus uses the image of mountain moving to point us to a God who is able to do the impossible. And this God, for whom nothing is impossible, is the God that prayer seeks. All right, I think that we can get a handle on what our Lord Jesus Christ is telling us here. I think we can understand why it is so important to Jesus that, his, that 
that uh, his father's house be honored as a house of prayer for the nations and why it is so important that we do not hijack Christ church for our own ends. The fig tree drives home the lesson for us. The lesson has to do with prayer, and here's the, here's the lesson. It is not reasonable to expect figs on a fig tree when it is not the season for figs. It is not reasonable to expect figs on a fig tree when it is not the season for figs. But prayer is not bound by the reasonable. Prayer does not operate on the ordinary. Rather, prayer invites the extraordinary, the unexpected. Prayer can bear figs out of season. Prayer can move mountains. What were the very first words of Jesus' lesson at the fig tree, at the withered fig tree? Verse 22, have faith in God. Very first words, have faith in God. Because this God is the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or could even think. And this is the God who is present with and for his church. That's the prayer God's, uh, the God prayer seeks. The God who works beyond expectation and the God who is not limited by the ordinary course of events. Let's think how important this is. Jesus um, is coming to the close of his earthly ministry. Three and a half years he had been teaching and preaching. He had said many times that the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem. He delivered over to uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees. He talked about his crucifixion, talked about his resurrection. Finally, the time is at hand. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem at the climax of his earthly ministry. And what is the, he comes into Jerusalem to the shouts of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, the coming kingdom of our father David. All this messianic expectation, the culmination of covenant promises, all coming to a crescendo. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and what's the first thing that he does? He goes to the temple. He goes to where God's presence dwells. God dwells among his people. That's the, the temple is figurative, where God dwells. And he goes to the temple and he says, let me do a maintenance check here, a maintenance check. Let's see how well this, uh, this center for the spread of my kingdom is working. Here's the kingdom being brought in. And yet, let's see, Jesus says, how well my church is functioning. He does a maintenance check. Highlighted is the fact that the church is the power center for the expansion of the kingdom and fruitfulness of the gospel. 
The church is the power center for, uh, for the mission of, uh, as, a, as a house of prayer for the nations. It's the power center for the mission of Isaiah 56 of gathering the outcasts, bringing them into God's house where there'll be joy and life as the name of God is honored. And what that says to each of us, what it says to renewal, is that this church is to be a house of prayer. And we want to be faithful to God's design. It is faith in God that will drive us to prayer. And that means this, that um, you don't need to be hindered by limitations. You don't need to resort to gimmicks. You don't need to be satisfied with meager because God is with you and he wants to be sought by you. All right, let me close with one observation and two applications. Here's the observations. A house of prayer is not a church building. A house of prayer is the church itself, and you are the church. A house of prayer is not a place. It is a people, and you are that people. You are God's house of prayer where God dwells among you by his spirit. And prayer is the exercise of faith in God to do what only God can. All right, that's the observation. Uh, not, we're talking, talking about a building. We're not talking about a place. We're talking about God's people as a praying people. So here are the two applications. First, I want to talk to the elders, the leaders of this congregation. What, the, what the, the leaders of the day had done was they had allowed the church to become a den of robbers, something other than what God had intended. They, it was under their watch that the church had become a den of robbers instead of being a house of prayer for the nations. It was under their watch that, the, that the, the temple had become something other than what God wanted it to be. And so, elders, it is on you to keep the main thing the main thing. Here at Renewal, you, the elders, you want to create a culture of prayer where prayer touches everything. Prayer is the atmosphere that you breathe. You want to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. You want to equip the saints to pray, to know how to pray. You want to uh, um, lift their eyes to God at all times in all things. You want to be an example to the flock of prayer. It's kind of like uh, we were, when, you, when you gather the church and you, someone opens the door, it's like they come in and they hear the hum of machinery. In fact, I loved it uh, in the, this week, uh, this weekend, as uh, various times you said, uh, Pastor Luke or someone will lead someone, well, let's pray about this, and I hear this. I love it, and that's the way a house of prayer should be. There should be a constant hum 
of communion with God, a holy murmuring in awareness of God is with us, and he wants to hear from us, and he is the God who acts upon our prayer. Have faith in God. Elders, your job is to keep these sheep focused on the living God. All right. The second application, as you imagine, uh, deals with the rest of you. Um, each of you in the pew or you in the folding chairs. You are to be a people of prayer. And what the Bible says is this. You want to devote yourself to prayer. Now, there's a little difference between dabbling in prayer and devoting yourself to prayer. Devoting yourself means you give it over to, you give yourself over to prayer. You want to learn the language of prayer. You want to learn the language of praise and thanksgiving and confession and lament and petition and intercession. You want to live with your eyes on God and lean on Him for all things. You want to pray in your study. You want to pray as a family. You want to teach your children to pray. You want to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, I love that. You know, pray for the person on your left, your right. You know, all, all that I, I saw this weekend. Be quick to pray for friends and neighbors in their need. Um, I, I met with a, uh, regularly with a pastor at uh, Chick-fil-A and, uh, for breakfast. And there was a, a woman there who uh, was one of the clerks, cashiers, servers, I don't know what you call them. Um, and she knew that we were a couple pastors, and uh, she would see us praying uh, together. And so one time she came over to our, where we were sitting, and she said, my son has been in a terrible accident. I think he was 16-year-old, something like that. Terrible accident. Would you pray for him? So I said, we said yes. And I said, why don't we pray for him right now, right now? And she was taken aback and said, but okay, so we prayed for her and for her son. And wouldn't you know it, that every, it seemed like every time we would go and we would meet for breakfast at that Chick-fil-A again, and we would see this woman, she would, she would turn to a colleague and said, these are, the, these are the guys who prayed for me. These are the guys who prayed for me. And that led to openings of conversations for Christ. And by God's grace, her son was restored to health. And we were able to give God glory together. You see, you want to be known as a praying people. You want to be known as someone who knows God, has faith in God, and speaks to God. Pray for yourself and for your struggles. Now, one of the things, I gave you an advertisement last night that you would find hope for... I would give you hope this morning in the event that, you're fine, that you find you're unable to forgive someone. Here is this hope, and I hope you find great encouragement. You notice how Jesus enters, uh, ends this. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you, your trespasses. If you, if you, I think what, what God's saying is this, that if you find in your heart a root of bitterness that you are unable to pull out, 
a root of bitterness that sours everything, that prompts a critical spirit in you, that, as it says in Hebrews, defiles you, defiles others. God invites you to turn to him and pray that you might find help, mercy, and grace to forgive. Because prayer doesn't work in season. It, well, it does, but it works in season and out of season. It breaks down barriers. And you can find grace to help and to heal and to free and to give you strength and joy. May God bless this church as an incubator for disciples to grow them in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, an incubator. And also bless it as an outpost of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, an outpost to the nations through prayer. Let me pray for us.